go to Luke chapter 5. Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. We have been in the study of Luke and really enjoying it. We come to a great little portion of Luke's narrative, verses 27 to 32. And it's the kind of story that we've come to love already. It's a story of redemption, of course, and it's another account where a hopeless and needy sinner meets Christ and he is radically transformed by our Savior. We've, of course, been riveted already in this gospel as Jesus has met sinners and met their need. And we remember he confronted and cast out the demon from a helpless soul. A tortured soul in the synagogue, we, we saw him miraculously cleansed from that evil. We also saw this wonderful redemption played out when Jesus rebuked the severe virus that had riddled the body of Peter's mother-in-law. And once he rebuked that illness, it was gone and she was miraculously healed. We became again familiar with those redemptive themes when we saw the Lord encounter the leper's friends as they put him through the roof and dropped him in front of Jesus. And what a wonderful opportunity for forgiveness to be granted and salvation to be wrought in his heart and, of course, physical healing from that disease. We love to read those accounts and we've come to expect them already so early in this gospel And today's account has all those same amazing elements in it. But the passage today also ends with a statement from Jesus that is particularly shocking. Verse 32. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The positive side of that statement, we hear it and our hearts rejoice. Jesus came to earth to call sinners to repentance. He came to save sinners, to redeem fallen sinners who are helpless and hopeless and enemies of God. Ungodly, as Romans 5 calls us. But notice the negative side. Jesus said that he did not come to call the righteous. There are people that Jesus did not come to save. Wow. There are people that Jesus does not call. People upon whom he sets his wrath. There are some to whom he would not grant forgiveness. That's a shock. Most people in our culture, if they've heard of Jesus at all, would assume that The message of forgiveness that comes with the gospel comes from a story of a a compassionate man who went from place to place offering a message of kindness and a message of hope, helping anyone in general. And most people assume that he offered forgiveness and salvation to everyone universally. Universally. If anyone is inclined to accept That Jesus did exist, if people in the world accept that his message of salvation might indeed be true, and if they agree that there is coming a time perhaps when they might have to answer to the creator of the universe, to answer to God for how they've lived as one of his creatures, then many people simply imagine that at that point, Jesus is going to offer them heaven and offer them forgiveness 
universally, without condition. Somehow Jesus came to earth to model sacrificial love and just to sort of offer it to everyone. And with a wave of his hand, he's just going to pardon every human being. You hear it all the time. I've been to ministries and parachurch ministries and missions organizations and in churches. And people just act as though Jesus just doles out forgiveness to anyone, whether they have asked for it or not, whether they've recognized who they are in his presence or not. He's just going to forgive. He's just going to wink at sin and go. That's what the gospel kind of has become. Notice what Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous. There are some people whom Jesus did not spend time calling to come and receive forgiveness. There are some to whom he is not granting pardon. Who are these people? Who are these people upon whom Jesus has no saving compassion? Well, Luke records what happened that day because... In the sovereign purposes of God, a circumstance was unfolding that would expose this striking contrast. It's a, it's a polarization of hearts, if you will. It's a contrast between the person who receives the forgiveness of Christ and the one who does not. Let's just read the text and then we'll unpack it a bit and get a grasp on this vivid Polarization. Verse 27. And after that, speaking of course of him coming out of the house where he had healed the paralytic. And after that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, the first thing we see in this text is the kind of person that Jesus does call. The kind of person that Jesus does respond to in compassion, in pardon, in forgiveness. And we are introduced to him in verse 27. After that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office. Now, With that information, and not to belabor the point too much, but already unfolding in the narrative for the reader in the first century would have been all kinds of images in their mind about a tax gatherer or literally a tax collector, sometimes translated in the New Testament, publican. What we note about publicans and tax gatherers and tax collectors in the New Testament record is very simple. It's very simple. These were men who were hated. Why? Because they acquired a tax franchise from the Roman Empire and used it against their own people to get rich. Those are the kind of people in our culture we can't stand. You know how that is. 
when religious leaders, fakes, phonies, false prophets, false teachers, when they prey on the poor and people with very little resource and who are vulnerable and lies are told and and uh, power is gained over someone's vulnerabilities and then they are built for everything they have. Or worse, they have nothing and they're still, you know, fleeced. We can't stand that kind of thing. We not only see it in religion, we see it in politics, we see it in business, we see it in the general rank and file of our culture for those that are dishonest. Well, in this particular time period, you had tax collectors who came out of the Jewish community uh, away from their Jewish brethren and took care of, managed, or even purchased a tax-collecting business from the Roman Empire. And because they were from the Jewish community, they could go into the Jewish community and infiltrate and get money a lot easier, a lot more easily. And so in that sense, they were traitors. They were traitors. Professional extortionists. Now, Mark's Gospel tells us that after the healing of the paralytic, Jesus then left the house and taught the crowds along the shoreline of the lake. So he came out after healing the paralytic. Everyone was, in, was stunned. And so he, he left, and not to be uh, hemmed in by the crowd too much, he started spreading out his teaching ministry again, and he taught all day. And somewhere in between that shoreline series of sermons, he was headed back, or perhaps maybe even back to the house, and he sees Levi there in his tax office. Levi, by the way, was his Aramaic name. And uh, he is also known as Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, Mark's gospel says. And he himself in his own gospel calls himself Matthew. So apparently Levi was the Aramaic name and Matthew was the name that he took. He is the same who wrote the gospel of Matthew giving his own account of the person and work of Christ. In his gospel, he only mentions his name twice. One describes the calling of Matthew, so it would be the text that's parallel to this. And in the other, the listing of the disciples, he is there also listed. The rest of the time, he says nothing about his own life. But nonetheless, we knew his business from the past. He was a professional extortionist in a tax franchise for Rome. And he was especially hated because it was viewed by his people as selling out. And then as a traitor of your own people, uh, while your people are suffering greatly under the Roman economics and oppression, instead of suffering along with your people, you cut a deal with Rome and you take that and become a business owner of these franchises and you're used as, the, as a tool of the empire, literally, to squeeze taxes from your own people. Jews in league with Rome to oppress with taxes your own Jewish brethren. And worse, it was the low-brow element of society. It was associated mostly with, as I said, criminal extortion. So most of these who were in business abused the delegated power they had from Rome and they did it to get rich. There were two basic categories of tax. One involved the kinds of things we would pay. Property taxes and, and uh, income taxes and local taxes, things like that, uh, that would be general. You know, your poll taxes and you know, the kinds of things we generally pay to federal government. And then they had the category of the local tax. And Levi was a local tax 
collector, and he would work in the realm of the smaller, sort of harder to quantify taxes, so that there was a bit of nebulin about the definition of them. The name of these categories of taxes was makesh, and they would tax any and every kind of trade, marketplace trade, commerce, even the personal benefits that you would enjoy as a citizen. They taxed your imports and your exports, uh, your goods and services, the use of the roads, etc. So, in the tax office, the customs office, whether it was for the shipping uh, or whether it was for just the roads and their travel routes, uh, they would come up with all kinds of fees for traveling distances, even the smallest distances. They would tax your animals. They would tax your tools and equipment, your supplies, your delivery services. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> You're saying, well, that's no, nothing new. <laughs> oh, man, in our culture, absolutely. Kent Hughes noted in his commentary that the Romans collected their taxes through a system called the tax farming. They assessed a district a fixed tax figure and then sold the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder. So the buyer then had to hand over the assessed figure at the end of the year and then keep whatever he gathered above that moment. I mean, this just breeds extortion. This just fosters greed. Hughes would say the potential for abuse was further aided by both the primitive record-keeping and the limited means of communication in the ancient world, both of which made it difficult for people to verify when they were being exploited or even appealed to it, end quote. So, since this is along the shoreline, just to kind of drop us down into the scenario here, this is along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, Levi was likely a collector at both the shoreline trade route and the main fishing port. His office stood right there on the docks or right near the trade route that came along the fishing docks. So in a sense, he was like the customs agent. The officer to whom everybody paid the fees. If you had a fishing business, you'd pay him. If you shipped goods across the sea, you'd pay him. If you carried supplies uh, to the marketplace along the trade business routes, you'd pay him. And remember, this is the Roman Empire. This is not a democracy. What you're told to do, you do. And that's why the business of tax collecting was associated with so much Organized thuggery. It was the lowbrow of society. It was the criminal elements of society because you couldn't prove that the amounts were arbitrary or excessive. If they caused financial detriment, you had no recourse. Too bad. You paid it. Or you get on the bad list. And the business was brutal to people who did not pay. So there's absolutely no doubt that the kind of person that is seen here is cruel, he's brutal, no question about it, and he was full of the love of ill-gotten money. So Jesus, coming back from teaching in the day, comes near by the office, and here is this outcast from his own people. In fact, he couldn't even enter the synagogues. So he was considered by the Jews the most vile of mankind. In fact, the Talmudic writing said if he could cheat a tax collector, he deserved it. He deserved it. Matthew's only friends were thieves and thugs, the very underbelly of culture. Later, when he throws a reception, you'll notice that you have all the sinners there at the reception, mentioned in verse 29. Matthew's Gospel, listen to Matthew 21, 31 to 32. Assuredly, I say to you, this is Matthew himself speaking, 
that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. This is Jesus being quoted by Matthew, and he, he's writing down what Jesus said, and the friends of a tax collector were the prostitutes of society. John came to you in the way of righteousness, Jesus said, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you didn't afterward relent and believe in him. Tax collectors and harlots, tax collectors and prostitutes. It's just, they go together. In Luke 18, look at Luke 18 for a moment. You have the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. Notice you have the parable of the the one who's standing there to pray. Two men went up to the temple to pray, Jesus says in Luke 18.10. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Look at this. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. That's, that's the friend of Levi. That's his group. That's his club. And you know what? That's the kind of person that Jesus calls. Why? Because Jesus knows no bounds. His grace is sufficient. It's able to cover any sin. Some people think they have sinned so greatly in society and culture that they can't be reached out to by Christ. That's not the issue. How great your sin is is not the issue. His grace is greater than any sin. With one exception, He will not forgive rejection of Him. The unpardonable sin is a rejection of Christ. A defiance against Christ. But a greedy person, a cruel person, a person from a terrible background, that's the kind of person Jesus can call. Absolutely. This is the kind of thing that Jesus knew would infuriate the Jewish leaders of Israel. I mean, if you think of Jesus walking around the earth, he's all soft and he's always soft-spoken and he never causes any trouble and all of a sudden the Jews get, get upset over nothing. No. But Jesus loved to reach out to the cruel and the greedy and the sinner and the broken and the prostitute, but he loved to use these scenarios to poke the self-righteous religious system in the eye. And he did it. He knew that reaching out to Levi would do just that. And the lower it seemed that someone sank into the bondage of sin, knowing that that would cause them to drift further and further away from any hope of hearing a compassionate word of grace from the religious system, Jesus moved right in to those kind of sinners. And Levi was a man of greed and cruelty. Yet notice what happens. Jesus saw him sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. Now this is, this is absolutely astounding. We, we have no information from the Gospels that would suggest that Matthew had significant prior contact with Jesus. It's likely they had crossed paths if he's in the tax office and Jesus is doing a lot of teaching and of course healing all in that area. It's likely that Matthew or Levi knew of Jesus. Maybe they crossed paths. Maybe even Matthew was hearing Jesus teaching as he kind of went through the little dock area, getting in and out of boats and things like that to teach. But verse 27, Jesus noticed Levi at the customs desk. 
This is, this is the term that means he went deliberately over there and gazed at him to say something to him. This is Christ reaching out to the kind of person he wants to save. You say, how did he know that? Well, because Matthew's reaction, Levi's reaction, indicates what was happening already in the man's heart. Jesus said, follow me. And notice he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. Left everything behind? That doesn't mean that he, he left the money in the booth and, and all that. It means he left his old life. He left his business. He began the life of following Christ. He embarked upon a life of making Jesus the, the master and Lord of his life. He followed Christ. From that moment forward, Matthew extracted himself from his previous life. He was gloriously redeemed. He left his criminal practices. It was on his heart to leave those practices. He left his seedy life of personal sin with prostitutes and whoever else was out there that he was involved with. He walked away from living for himself. And the the verb here, follow him, means he began to embark upon a life of following him. What was it? Well, obviously, Matthew knew the Old Testament. He quotes in his gospel the Old Testament over 95 times. Think about that. He knew the scriptures. He was Jewish. He knew the scriptures. He understood the truth. He understood what he had done when he bought at that franchise or operated on behalf of Rome. He knew that he was an extortionist. He knew that he had been in the seedy underbelly of society. He knew that his lifestyle had descended into worldliness. He loved the world, and yet, longingly, as his sin began to weigh heavy on him, he wanted hope, forgiveness, pardon. He was becoming broken, obviously. He was tortured. He knew of the Messiah. He had no doubt taught others from time to time, maybe some in his family. And the region was already abuzz with the news about Jesus' proof that he was the Messiah. And so by the time Jesus calls Matthew to leave the old life and follow him, he's already a broken man. In fact, he probably sat there in that booth many times. That guy would never want to talk to me. This Jesus that I see running back and forth to, to those guys and their fishing business and getting on boats and teaching crowds, this guy who's been healing people and all I ever hear about it, he's never going to come over to me. Here I am. I've betrayed my own people. I've betrayed their God. I have walked away from what I knew. He is never going to forgive me. And Jesus walks over, gazes at him deliberately, and says, follow me. Well, he was already a broken man. He was already shattered in his pride by the knowledge of his guilt and the gaze of the Savior and the mere words of the Savior spoke of Matthew's unworthiness. He knew it. Notice what he does. Levi, verse 29, gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. So you say, well, that's nice of him to do. No, no, you don't understand. This is evangelism. 
Levi is saved. He is redeemed. This says everything about what happened to Levi's heart. He gave a big reception for him in his house and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. Look, when he left his booth, when he started setting forth all of his, the closing of accounts, when he was going to turn away his old lifestyle, every person he spoke to, and I'm sure that that evening was falling as Jesus said, follow me. It must have been late afternoon or evening. I'm sure that the seedy crowd who were his friends started coming out of the woodwork for old business and old times. And Levi said, look, I'm throwing a reception. Not in the booth tonight. I'm throwing a reception. And I want you there because you have got to meet the Savior. You need to meet Him. He's probably still had to make some kind of contact with the empire to kind of hand over the office to someone else. Which would have brought immense trouble to his life for this radical change. He considers it nothing compared to knowing and following the Messiah. And so he begins to make his salvation public. This is the fruit of a genuine conversion. He does the one thing that that the flesh doesn't want to do when you get saved. I mean, you know how it is. You come to Christ, but you still have to battle with the flesh. And maybe it's a week, maybe it's an hour, maybe it's ten months, but at some point, the old friends call. They come calling. The old life comes. Satan loves to do that. I've seen so many converts. They come to Christ and the old life comes rushing back into their face in short order. What is Satan trying to do? He is attracting you with Vanity Fair. He is stirring up the fear of man in your heart. He is taking advantage of your immaturity. The best thing for you to do when you've just come to Christ is to separate strongly And drastically from all that. And then when your friends want to know what happened, you just tell them as boldly as you can tell them. The Lord forced me into that. I had lived a hypocritical life at a small military site in a confined space with a few rank pagans. And when I came to Christ, I just gathered them in a room. It was all I could do. Something had changed. I wasn't going to do all the things I was doing. So I gathered them all in a little room at the end of the hallway. About 20 of them. And they're just staring at me in this room. And I'm thinking, oh man. So I just told them, men, I've been a hypocrite. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. I've repented of my sin. I mean, the hoots and howls began. And the hostilities began. And the attempts to, to knock me off this new religion that they believed I had. I understand all that. It was good for me. It was good for my flesh to get hacked and beaten up and have to stand. And I I don't believe I was perfect. I think I was fearful and at times didn't say what I needed to say. But the Lord knew. I love this about Levi. He gets a reception and he calls all of his criminal friends and says, you got to be here. I got something to tell you and I want someone you need to meet. He's coming. Some people have this whole thing backwards. You know, they get converted and around their friends from the old life, they just clam up. They try to finesse their friends. Ooh, I just don't want them to reject. And, you know, you got it backwards. It's just an excuse. Sometimes we just haven't truly left everything to follow Christ. 
And, and from our conversion forward, the Lord sometimes has to bring some pretty terrible grief to let us wake up to the dangers of the old habits and relationships. Look, young people, if you've come to Christ recently, cut that stuff out. Be bold. Let them reject you. Make it clear. Polarize the issue. Black and white. I love you, but here's the Savior I'm following. I'm not doing those old things anymore. You don't like it? I, I, I will pray for you. Please continue to, to be open to what I have to say, but I can't go where you go. I can't do what you do, and I won't. The Lord Jesus Christ has rescued me. And so here is a party, and there are thugs and prostitutes and extortionists. Why? Because... Because Levi wanted to contextualize? No. He's not contextualizing. He brought Jesus. And he's about to give him a message. And that's what you ought to do. That's the kind of person Jesus calls. Someone who's shattered by their sin, no matter what the sin, who reaches out to Christ in true repentance. And when they're converted, you see the fruit of it. Jesus has called them. And then... We see in this contrast of this text the kind of people that Jesus does not call. And this is so vivid. Verse 29. That crowd was reclining at the table with Jesus. Verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at His disciples. Obviously, they knew that the party was ensuing. Maybe they even came to it out of curiosity. And they said, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat with them? Here's the category of people. You've got the criminal element and you've got the immoral element. Tax collectors and sinners. That's why it was said that way. The immoral element and the, the violently brutal and, uh, and greedy, powerful criminal element. Mark's Gospel says, And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them. And then it says, And they were following him. So some of even those in the room were broken over their sin and coming to Christ. Levi was already having an evangelistic impact. There were others that were following Christ. But the first thing I want you to notice about the Pharisees is that they were men of arrogance and prejudice. They were men of arrogance and prejudice. Jesus reaches out to men of greed and cruelty who are also men of guilt, who own their guilt. Men who own their sin and are contrite. But the kind of person he rebukes the kind of person that he speaks to but is not calling are the kind of people who are arrogant and prejudiced. That's the first thing you notice. Why eat and drink with? The condescension here is thick. Tax gatherers and sinners. They had a hatred for those, listen, who were outside their spiritual pedigree and their approval. So the tax gatherer was considered an outcast because he betrayed the country. The sinners, the immoral people, were someone that the Pharisees would not go near. In fact, look at Luke 7 for a moment. By the way, let me just say something about that whole issue of contextualization. Some people say, oh, Jesus, you know, the reason I hang out with my friends is because Jesus hung out with sinners. And 
There were basically three scenarios where Jesus hung out with sinners and hung out is the wrong verb. The first one you're seeing right here, he went to a reception that Levi threw because Levi got saved and he wanted Jesus to save his friends as well. The second is right here in Luke 7 where a Pharisee invited Jesus as the respected town rabbi that's passing through to come for dinner. And notice that when he is in Simon's house, beginning in verse 36, a woman who was a sinner, there it is, she's a known harlot, a prostitute, she makes her living selling herself on the street in immorality. And of course, you know the story, she came in and she wept on Jesus' feet and she wiped him with her hair and she did everything that a low-level slave would do uh, and far worse, she took the glory of a woman and used it as, a, as an old foot rag and then tears, and then costly perfume, maybe even a year's wages, some would estimate, rather than just the basic oil of the custom of the day that Simon never even bothered to put upon his respected guest. And there she is weeping. And here it is in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. There it is. Oh, look, if this guy were a prophet, what does that tell you Simon was thinking? You're no prophet. Or I'm going to test you. I'm going to check you. Because you don't come through my pedigree. You don't come through the religious pedigree and you're not even looking for my approval. So I'm going to prove you're not a prophet. Here you've got a prostitute who's touching you. That would defile a holy man like me. That's what he's thinking. The third scenario where Jesus would spend time with, with, believer, with unbelievers or in the home of an unbeliever is when someone in there was saved or being saved. Luke chapter 10, he sent the 70 out and he said, look, if you go into the home and someone serves you a meal and welcomes you on, as you're a missionary for the Lord and, and spreading the gospel of the kingdom, then then bless them. And if they don't accept you, then shake the dust off your feet and don't accept them. Wherever someone gets saved and you can use that house for a mission staging home, then stay there. Enjoy. There's no sense in which Jesus ever just spent time catering to unbelievers by becoming part of their lifestyle. That just never happens. Back to Luke 5. You can see the condescension and the arrogance because they had a hatred for anyone who was outside their spiritual pedigree and their approval. And then we might even say, secondly, Jesus does not call men who men of defiance and self-righteousness. Notice verse 31, Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Look, if they were sarcastic, if they were dripping with arrogance and prejudice, Jesus turns it on them and uses terms that, that are, in this case, heavily pointed at them. I, I am looking for people who know they're sick. I'm not looking for people who don't need me. I'm the physician. You're well if you say you don't need me. I'm not calling those who don't need a physician. You obviously don't believe you're sick. You don't believe you're sick. 
And why? Because you believe you're righteous. I mean, look at the, the way Jesus puts this together in his genius. It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You don't think you're sick, and it's because you think you're righteous. There it is. Do you know what that? Just reverse it, beloved. Anyone who knows they are hopelessly sick with an incurable spiritual disease already know they have no righteousness that could affirm them or commend them to God. The kind of people Jesus calls are people who come to Him as their only healer of spiritual disease. They don't bring rituals. They don't bring their church attendance. They don't bring their grandparents' Christianity. They don't bring their spouse's Christianity. They don't come to God and say, but, 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 I came, but, but, I listened, but, I, I read, but, I went. People who know they need a physician don't, don't bother with any of that. Why? Because if you know you're sick spiritually and you need Christ as your only physician, then you already know none of that righteousness matters. It's nothing. There are none righteous. No, not one, Romans 3 says. You must come and believe that God is the rewarder of those who seek Him. Repentance. You know what the issue is with these men? They do not acknowledge guilt. What kind of guilt? Oh, that I've sinned a little bit? No, 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 no. James chapter 2 says, if you violate God's standard of holy law in one point, you are at that point condemned and guilty of all. And since we are born with a sinful nature and children of wrath by nature, we're condemned at conception, let alone when we begin to manifest that in our suppression of righteousness. Because we love to suppress the truth. Remember, we saw that in John 15 regarding persecution. Jesus said in John 15, Look, these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they wouldn't have as much guilt as they have. You know what their problem is? Jesus. He's in the room, and he's saving people that they would never go near. And it galls them. Oh, you are saying that we are like the tax collector? It's class distinction on a spiritual level. You're saying we're like Him? You reach out to Him, but you don't reach out to us? Yeah, you don't think you're sick. <laughs> Why would I be your physician if you don't acknowledge in the deepest part of your being that you are guilty? Why would I do that? It's no small barrier, beloved. In fact, apart from the grace of God, it's impossible. You say, then why even say I need a physician? Because God calls you to cry out to Jesus for mercy. Cry out to God for a new heart. Say, I've sinned so greatly he could never forgive me. Sure he can. His grace is greater than any sin. Where sin did abound, grace did all the more abound, Romans 5 says. Clearly God's grace can cover any sin. What he won't reach out to, the person he won't call, is someone who says, I don't need you. 
In fact, you're in a nice position. I like the way that you, you know, taught and you're a great example. And man, you really pulled some major stunts with those miracles. And frankly, your sacrifice, it's, it's just amazing. It's humanitarianism at a whole other level. But physician to heal me, that's for that woman and that man and that family and those people. And that's for them. Personally, I don't mind if you get alongside me and when we meet our maker... You know, we can maybe go halves on this. A little bit of you, a little bit of me. No. The kind of people Jesus does not come to call are people who need, in their minds, no forgiveness. No forgiveness. Lord, when you share the gospel, you, you cannot... You cannot finesse people past this issue. It cannot be done. If you try to do that, it is to their eternal peril. You must just tell people, look, you are sick. Spiritually sick with a disease you cannot heal. And there is no healing in religion. There is no healing in your gurus, there is no healing in your cultural things, your family, your heritage, your pedigree, your education. There is no healing in money, no politics. There is no healing in any of that. There is no healing in other so-called prophets, false gods. There is only healing in the physician himself, Jesus Christ. And when he came, he wasn't going to call somebody who thinks they're righteous. And they were so smug when Jesus healed the blind man and they came to the blind man and said, how did you get healed? And he said, well, I've already told you the story. Are you, do you keep asking because you want to be Jesus' disciple too? Boy, that made him angry. And they said, oh, you, you were born entirely in sin and you're going to instruct us? We're holy people by blood, by pedigree. Look at you. You're, you were blind. That's because your parents or you in the... In the Sovereign plan of God, you are being judged already by some wickedness in your chain, your, your family bloodline. We're, we're the holy ones. Who are you talking to? And when they finally saw Jesus, the blind man came to Jesus and uh, they forgave him. And the Pharisees heard that. Oh, they were galled. And they said, oh, we're not blind too, are we? And you remember what he said? If you were blind, you would have spiritual vision. But since you say, we're not blind, your sin remains. If you knew you were blind, you wouldn't have any sin. You'd be forgiven because you would have come to me with your blindness and said, we're blind, please open our eyes. But because you say, we don't need you to give us spiritual eyesight, your sin remains. You're blind, utterly blind. And you'll never be rescued. I'm not calling you. This is why no one gets saved outside of repentance. Repentance is... Remember, we studied this in Luke chapter 3. It has that, those three elements. The thought, the knowledge element. It has the grief element. And it has the conviction element. The thought element is, I, I see the truth and I see the truth about me. The grief element is, I need Christ. And look at I don't deserve Christ. I'm grieved over the who I am. 
Not what I do, but who I am. It's terrible what I do, but it's a reflection of who I am at the core. I am wicked and I deserve nothing. Lord, if you offer mercy in Christ, that's what I want. Him alone. And then the conviction element. You know what the conviction element? Levi had a reception to honor his new master and he called all his friends. Well, that was fruit. He was convinced. He left everything. True change. You forsake your religious pretense. You flee your pet idolatries. Even when the Pharisees came out to John the Baptist, what, do we, what should we do? You say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what should we do? And he just kept telling them specifically. You remember that? He kept telling them specifically, well, your particular besetting sin, that's what you need to get rid of. And then, even in Luke chapter 3, he said to the tax collectors, don't take more money than you were ordered to take by Rome. Don't tax people with greed and cruelty for your own self. What's the fruit of a repentant tax collector? He, he loves Christ and he's, he's suddenly honest. An honest tax collector? Can you imagine? No offense to IRS people here who love the Lord. But you are rare. Because the, those kind of businesses foster dishonesty. The fruit of which, Jesus said, is integrity of the heart. When someone repents of their sin, it cuts against their own love for themselves, their own worship of themselves, their own greed if they happen to love money, their own bitterness if they happen to hate people, their own prejudice if they happen to to hate other races or ethnic groups, their own sinful fear if they happen to live in the fear of, of earthly circumstances. It cuts against the grain of their own conspiratorial heart because they're always looking for ways and devising ways to get ahead and stomp on other people and deceit and jealousy and envy. That's what it cuts across the grain of. And whatever it is in the heart, you bring it to Christ and you say, will you call me? Will you save me? That's what God the Pharisees. Because they would never go near that tax booth. Because... Levi would defile them. In what sense? You're not worthy of me. You're a lowlife traitor. The grace that's offered from the temple is all about the righteousness you see in me, the Pharisees would say. And Jesus comes along and says, that's not grace at all. That's the wickedness of men's hearts who won't say they're sick. And Jesus walks right over to that temple, that, that tax booth, and says to the, to the outcast, you follow me. And lo and behold, a guy who'd sinned in ways he would have never imagined even getting the notice of Jesus is called to follow him. And he gets up and he leaves everything. And the Pharisees who are watching the reception happen, they're not called at all. They're not called Listen, beloved, the Lord reaches with his mercy to those who know they are sick. Not those who are sorrowful over their circumstances, but those who ask Jesus for healing, spiritual healing, in his mercy, which they do not deserve. He's not come to call someone who thinks they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And what does he call them to? Repentance. Repentance.
to know you're a sinner, to grieve over the fact that you've offended God and are hopeless, to run to Him for mercy, and to experience His grace. That's who He calls. Look, if you're here today and it's, it's all just been perfunctory to you, I, I'm just challenging you. You can't force your way into the kingdom. You're not going to come to God in your own strength and you certainly aren't going to bring anything you own or about yourself. I care what your heritage is. I don't care how many good works you try to do. You must come to Jesus Christ and say, will you be merciful to me, a sinner? That's what happened in Luke 18 with the, the tax collector. He stood next to the Pharisee and he wouldn't even lift up his head and he stayed over off to the side. And the Pharisee said, I'm glad I'm not like this tax collector. And the tax collector said, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. And he, he just pounded his own chest. Probably at the daring of even asking. Jesus said, which one of them went away justified? Tax collector. He went away forgiven. There's no sin of any one of you in this room that is too great for the grace of Christ. There's only one unpardonable sin. If you don't admit you're sick, you don't come to Christ asking for mercy. That's the unpardonable sin. So go to Him. Don't waste any more seconds. Bow with me. Father, we are amazed at the grace of Jesus Christ to reach out to this low life. And it's just such an indicting story because if we grew up in religion, we're like the Pharisees. If we grew up in prostitution, we're like the low lives that were in that room. And Lord, we gather here as your people because at some point, those who in this room know and love you came to you and said, we're sick. And that sickness is complete and permanent and destructive and bondage. And it is impossible to heal ourselves. And we came and we asked you for mercy and you saved us. It's a supernatural work. It doesn't, it doesn't involve any kind of pre-requirement of conduct. Some bringing of a righteous life to you. That's nothing. You don't call those who think they're righteous. But when we come and we throw off all that pretense and just throw ourselves on your mercy in faith and trust you that you've promised to heal and forgive. That's exactly what you do. What a faithful, caring, patient God. Magnanimous love and grace to cover any life of wickedness. Lord, don't let anyone leave here today who thinks their sin is too great. You walked right up to Levi. And you stared into that tax booth and into his sullen, broken eyes. And you said, follow me. What grace. We thank you for your kindness to us as sinners. Break the pride and the arrogance and defiance and self-righteousness of anyone here today who will not bend. In your kindness and in your mercy, 
bend them. We pray it for your glory's sake. Amen.